Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, everyone. You have arrived at Characters on the Couch. I'm Jordana Horn, and I am here with my dear friend, Dr. Adam Stern. Hi there. And we're going to be chatting all about analysis of fictional people. Hi, everybody. So today we're going to go and talk about, uh, I would say it's probably, uh, I haven't made a definitive list, but I'm going to say that Breaking Bad is probably one of the, it's definitely one of the top 10 best television shows in the past 10 years. I have put no effort into formulating that list beyond saying that sentence. I also want to say that I was very amused that when I did my Google deep dive before coming to this conversation so as to refresh my recollection because it's been a while since I've seen the entire series. <laughs> the synopsis of Breaking Bad was a high school chemistry teacher has a midlife crisis. No. <laughs> I'm like, right? And I'm like, huh, because my, mid- yeah. my midlife crisis is this podcast. So like, <laughs> one of us is really uh, off the grid here. But in any event, we're going to be talking about Walter White. So where do we even begin with Walter White, Adam? What, what's like, I, I know we like to start with the sketch outline and a little diagnosis, but then I want to take a deeper dive into Um, into Walt's midlife crisis. You know, it's just occurring to me as you ask me that question is that they build in a a minor psychiatric assessment into one of the season or fairly early seasons, I think, where he goes off on one of his adventures and ends up claiming that he's been in a fugue state. Yes, haven't we all, For those of you (laughs) who don't know, (laughs) is a a state where you are uh, not... You have no memory of it. It's as though you've just been living a life without consequence and without conscious control over yourself. Which does not then, sound bad. And then you sort of come to and right, right. are told all the hijinks that you got up to. Now, so in that scene, essentially Walter White is is uh, psychiatrically hospitalized because of his fugue state. And, and he realizes if he just tells the psychiatrist what's really going on, the psychiatrist will have no grounds to, to keep him psychiatrically hospitalized and he'll discharge him. So he does. And so the two-liner <laughs> on this patient is essentially, okay, this is a middle-aged uh, Caucasian gentleman that is a high school chemistry teacher, recently diagnosed with lung cancer, non-smoker, and having adjustment issues, you know, as another <laughs> understatement of the year. Right. Um, what we learn as soon as, is it in the pilot that we, like the very first episode, we learn that essentially to make ends meet, he's going to start 
cooking meth, which is not only something that he can do better because he's so meticulous and such a good chemist mm-hmm. that he can do better than any street criminal drug dealer out there, but something that he suddenly feels as though he can do to protect his family, you know, because he has this uh, largely terminal condition that he can do without consequence, right? So this is the this is the broad premise, as I understand it from a, a friend of the friend of the pod, Alan Seppenwall, which I say, you know, because I don't know Alan, but I, I love his work. And I know and Alan. I, and so I think you do. Yes, Alan was, hi, Alan, if you're listening. <laughs> Alan was one of the editors of the arts and entertainment magazine of the college newspaper that I was the editor of. So, That's yeah. wonderful. So he, and he's a, a wonderful TV uh, critic and, and writer about these, this golden era, you know, of television, including Breaking Bad. And the way he's described this show that I thought was so perfect was that the show creators, Vince Gilligan et al., have tried to take someone like from Mr. Chips, like a, 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 a good, nice guy, follows the rules, to Scarface, you know, basically all the way yes. to uh, someone who is a, a criminal mastermind. Okay, and so I'm, is, not, but I'm going to jump in there and I'm going to ask mm-hmm. you because that is part, that is the main premise of the show is that Mm -hmm. devolution from law-abiding citizen to Mm -hmm. (laughs) drug mastermind overlord criminal their rampant deaths in in various flagrant and and Mm -hmm. horrible ways so i guess do you believe as a psychiatrist that each one of us has the potential to unravel and unfurl our own sense of ethics and morality and the ethical and morality interchange that we have with every other human being to that extent. I think we exist on, on a spectrum. Uh, if, if we were defining the spectrum of can you shed the layers of societal norms to the degree that Walter White does over the course of the show, I think we exist on a spectrum. He is to, it's taken to the uh, nth degree with him as far as, as really you can think to where he is at some points in the show essentially murdering innocent people. Mm-hmm. He's man- manipulating his closest friends, if you want to call Jesse Pinkman a friend, co-workers, family members. He manipulates everyone around him. He becomes this drug kingpin in a way that at the start of the show, you could never imagine, right? Mm-hmm. Does that happen for most people who are dealt a, uh, you know, life-threatening illness, a diagnosis like lung cancer? Uh, certainly not. And the reason I can tell you that with a certain degree of certainty is, is as you know, and some of, some of our listeners know, about four years ago, I was diagnosed with very serious cancer, a kidney cancer that had spread throughout the body. And I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for everyone's concern. But a lot changed in my mind since that diagnosis. In the early days after the diagnosis, there was a lot of uh, despair and there was also a lot of what does this mean for what kind of life I want to lead? What changes do I make? And I did make a lot of big changes. And some of the things that changed over four years aren't, well, I'm not so much a drug kingpin. uh, I was about to say, you're no offense and I, I don't want to insult you, but your drug operation is really quite crappy. It's, you're it's, you're not no, doing it, a great job. Well, the, the drugs I prescribe are, are, are really <laughs> quite, you know, uh, formally done uh, by the book, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, I'm, I'm not, I haven't gone to the Walter White world, but what it has let me do 
in a very, I say this as authentically and genuinely as I can, is it has taken away the risks that I didn't even see were there, the risk aversion that I didn't even mm. see on a day-to-day basis. And the best examples of that are things like doing this podcast with you, things like uh, writing essays that put my story out to the world or put my perspective out to the world. It, it led to me writing a book called Committed that's coming out in paperback next week, just by the way. Just a heads yeah, up. Just a heads up. It led to all these things that before the diagnosis, I would have been held back to a certain degree by fear of, well, what if that, that you know, we've talked about anxiety as a uh, coming from a source of, of uncertainty. What if? What if I get in trouble? What if I do it wrong? What if I don't get credit for it? What if? Sure. What no if you're good? embarrassed? What right? If I'm like, embarrassed? right. Yeah. The specter of embarrassment. Um, you and I have talked about the idea that, I mean, that that really is like out the window. Like, who? Yeah. Who actually yeah. cares? So imagine if you just if we bring it back to Walter White, and you imagine the calculus that has. If you imagine sort of a a scale and there's risks on one side and potential benefits on the other side, and he's just been dealt a diagnosis that for him gives him, you know, a very low likelihood of surviving several years, right? Right. Suddenly, if the risk, if excuse me, if the potential reward of starting to sell meth in this manner that he's able to do like no one else can possibly do is essentially infinite. He can pay for his family's well-being for the rest of their lives, let's say. And the risk is he gets caught and, and goes to jail for the six months that are left in his life, according to his mindset at that time. Right. Suddenly, it, it, you can almost understand where he's coming from. Yes, but I can't because let's let's look in uh, contrast, right? And you know that, Adam, you know that I've come to care for you and that I, I feel... Tremendous sympathy and empathy for you and for, you know, and I'm so glad that you are feeling good now. And I wanted to, though, ask you that, like, I think that a lot, and that that takes me back to a point where a lot of criminals, I guess, have this tendency or, okay, (laughs) television criminals, which is really my area of expertise because I, I actually mm-hmm. don't associate to my knowledge with overt criminals. But mm-hmm. I would say that people, they tend to, whether you're talking about Tony Soprano, mm-hmm. Walter White, definitely Marty Bird in Ozark, which I know you haven't seen, but honestly, mm-hmm. like even though it's a big lift, I think that I may have to push you into seeing it just because of mm-hmm. the psychological density of mm-hmm. all the stuff there. I'm just finishing Ozark. Don't spoil it for me. How ironic <laughs> since I spoil everything every week for everybody. But I guess what I'm saying is this justification of I'm doing it for my family. I'm doing it for my family. I'm doing it, you know, and that's supposed to check some sort of moral box. But if you really look at the big picture, right, like bringing more meth into society is very different from you writing an essay that is eye-opening and makes the reader a more empathetic person. Bringing more meth into society, like number one, it's a crime. We can argue about, you know, the whether drug laws in the United States, whatever. That's but that's I'm gonna table that. Because really you're getting involved in a system that, yes, there are immediate gains financially for your family but you are contributing 
to and exacerbating a crime-ridden, drug-riddled world. So in other words, the, the emotional and mental gymnastics that you have to do to say this is justifiable, surely there's something psychologically rich in that and and how you know most of us do it in more benign contexts right yeah i would say if if walter white's you know doing simone biles kind of gymnastics yeah. i'm doing like intro to gymnastics like can you do a somersault kind of mm-hmm. thing but i went through so so you know the examples i've already given were benign right i write an essay and it, uh, it goes on the internet we do a podcast and and some people listen to it hopefully but there were other changes that I made to my life after that diagnosis where my life, I, you know, just to be clear to the audience, I am doing super well. I'm currently off treatment. I have frankly outlived at this point my life expectancy. So I, I'm like, it's it's a, uh, with, with the particular kind of mutations that the tumor in my kidney had with how far it had spread and, and how many surgeries I've had and how many treatments I've had. This is a, I've, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate, uh, and I don't take that for granted. But along the way, you know, in those first six months, in the first year, especially, there was a there was about a ten month period where we weren't sure if it had spread or not. And spread is the big fear factor in mm-hmm. kidney cancer. If you can get it before it spreads, it's a curable thing. You know, very high, very high surgical cure rate. Like you have surgery, get your kidney out, you're good for a lot of patients. Mm -hmm. But when it spreads to the lungs, the lymph nodes, as it has for me and other patients, have it spread elsewhere. You know, it's a very uh, scary thing. And the the statistics are really scary when you look at them when Mm -hmm. you're first diagnosed. So I immediately, when that happened, the gymnastics I was doing in my mind was okay. You know, the statistics say that the average life expectancy from this point forward, at that point, I think it was in the range of, you know, 20 months, mm-hmm. 24 months, 28 oh. months. Was, you know, it, it changes every year, thankfully, because treatments are getting better and patients are living longer. But that was th- three and a half years ago, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, when, when I was looking at those numbers, I said, all right, if I have, let's say I have the average and averages are averages, right? So I could have more, I could have less. What do I want to be doing spending my time? And, and and what I did was I looked at the things that were taking up most of my time. And that included parts of my job that I loved and parts of my job that I tolerated mm. and parts of my job that I, that I struggled with. Right. And didn't look forward to. And sometimes in the parts of my job that I felt like I couldn't do as good of a job because my... Because A, I was going out for surgeries and treatments every so often, and B, because emotionally I wasn't as able to do the work. Right, right. I stepped back from those parts of my job. I made a choice. And that was actually hard for, that was a choice for myself. And you could argue for my patients, but but some of them probably felt like I was abandoning them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can only imagine. And so that's my version of, you know, like doing something for myself that may not be good for society, right? I could have worked myself to the bone until... Okay. I'm going to jump in there and say, I see a difference. I do see a difference between you and Walter White. And so I think that Walter White, I want to... But 
I think that another part of it is that he, I want to talk a little bit about Heisenberg and about how when Walter White takes on this identity of Heisenberg, how that further to me as someone who, again, I'll throw out there that I had intro to psych in college. A minus, I think you said. uh, A minus, I mean. That's not bad. It it really was pretty good. I'm not patting myself on the back. So, but I'm saying that like, you know, he really has, in other words, he's developed a way to, to me, it seems dissociate, which seems to be an essential component to nobody who's committing endless acts of criminality and violence is really allowing themselves to think too hard about what they're doing or the implications thereof, because that would result in paralysis and a failure of your drug kingpin operation. So that's one of the many reasons that I'm not a drug kingpin. But what what did you find particularly interesting once we get past Right, this diagnosis, which he's interpreted as kind of a metaphorical get out of jail free card, right? right that allows right. him to act with impunity. Once we get past that, what intrigued you about his psyche as he as he went as he moved into becoming Heisenberg and becoming, you know, yeah. this drug overlord? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It almost, to some degree, it followed an addiction model in the sense that it was never enough. Mm. So the goalpost kept moving where it began as I'm going to do this for my family. But then he had made hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions of dollars Mm -hmm. at some points. and, And there were opportunities to stop. And... I believe at some point in the show, his condition improves and his life expectancy, you know, I, I can't remember exactly, but I think right. he's sort of like, oh, he's responding to treatment. He, you know, there's a moment where he could, he could say, I'm going to get off that path toward being the uh, immoral drug kingpin. And, and I don't have to go back to being the schlubby chemistry teacher that, that doesn't get any respect which, by the way, there was no one I respected more than my chemistry teacher in high school who terrified me. Uh, if you're listening, uh, I, I won't name drop her, but she was she, she was a great teacher. But a te- I was terrified of her. Anyway, maybe my she's point a is, drug overlord somewhere now. Well, I don't want to go. I want. I don't want to cast aspersions. No, no, no way that's not aspersions. I'm saying you can tap into that terrifying personality <laughs> quotient, you know, really well there. But anyway, let's move on. Sorry. Let's move on. She was she was a wonderful teacher, and I um, whatever she's up to now, I, I totally respect it. So my point is that uh, you know 
he there were opportunities for him to get back on track. Mm. And he didn't have to go all the way back to the episode one version of himself. And and frankly, if we were if we had him on the couch, you know, we're gonna move on to the, the treatment, you know, we've been talking sort of formulation. Let's move on to treatment. If he right. actually came in, his family said, Listen, you've it, we're we're gonna if Skylar said, I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna leave if you don't get some help. That would A be the only way that he would really fully engage in a therapy. You know, he the the work would have to be about look, you don't have to choose between these two ends of the these two poles, these two ends of the spectrum. You don't have to be episode one, Walter White, and you don't have to be Eisenberg. There is a great, brilliant, wonderful, sort of charismatic, interesting guy right in the middle, you know? Uh, well, maybe not right in the middle, maybe closer to Walter White <laughs> right. in episode <laughs> right. one. Right. And that would be the version of himself we'd try to cultivate, you know, in working together. And where does it come from? It co- It's the same thing we talked about last week with Nate. It comes from a sense of being deval- undervalued, devalued his entire adult life. You know, he was in, they make a big fuss in the show about him and this other couple, and the other couple go on to make millions of dollars in chemistry. I forget doing exactly what, in, in pharmaceuticals maybe, something like that. And he feels like he got, you know, left out. He got left right. behind, right? right? And it, it all comes, I mean, that's, that's it, it is one example, but it's the whole premise in a nutshell is why does he feel the need to prove himself that he's so bad in, the, in, the, in a good way, that he's so tough, that he's so brilliant. He's the one who knocks. He needs to do this because he's felt undervalued forever. Right. And the flip side, I think it's interesting that all these television shows, and, and in real life, I'll add, that for many, I was going to say white, angry white men, but it seems that the flip side of feeling undervalued is to feel feared, that that is what they covet mm-hmm. rather than I want to be loved, I want to be appreciated, rather than those things, right. they want to be feared. Is wanting to be feared a weird mutation of wanting right, to be loved? They're conflating power with fear, right? And uh, a power agency respect, essentially. Mm-hmm. So self-worth, I mean, is really, if you boil it down, it, it in the end comes all the way back to self-worth because from self-worth comes validate, a feeling of, of validation right. that you don't need from other people, right? So if, if your entire life you're told that you're not good enough, we this comes up, my goodness, this comes up on our show so so often. The characters we talk about, a lot of their pathos stem from being underappreciated or or mistreated or abused when they're, you know, earlier in the early phases of the show, and then they sort of become these these ego driven characters, right? Right, and they made yeah, the so. whole Better Call Saul spinoff, right, premised on that idea, yeah. right? I love, I love. I, at least according to what I've read, the way that that went, as far as I know, as far as I understand it, is they were doing the show, and Saul Goodman is is this lawyer character beyond belief, just over the top. The TV right. commercials, The Office, everything's right. over the top. And in the writers' room, they'd come up with ideas. And I believe, again, not to name drop Alan Suppenwall a second time, I think I read this in an interview that he had with with the show creator Vince Gilligan. They would say. 
oh, that story idea is great, but we'll save it for the Saul show. They would, as a throwaway, they'd say like, oh, we'll right. just save it for the Saul show as though they were never going to do it. And then they, when, when Breaking Bad ended, they said, hey, let's do it. We had so much, we, you know, we were, that Breaking Bad was such a magnificent show. And I just want to pause to acknowledge as we record this, Better Call Saul is the, shall we say, the Godfather part two of this because it shows right. flashbacks years before where Bob Odenkirk's character transitions from, again, from a, a, a sort of good guy with a bad streak trying to make good, but who transitions to what we know of him, this dramatic irony that we know who he becomes, which is a guy who ends up running for his life, taking on new identities. Anyway, so this show, the the part two Godfather version of it is closing up this year, and we know it's it's going to be in the news and everybody's really excited for it, but we're not going to talk too much about it now because we're no we're going you know, to have to we're going to have to have a separate thing uh, on that but i but i would say that the moral ethical and psychological trajectory of Jimmy McGill who becomes the character that we know and love as Saul Goodman is it's fascinating but it's also part of what fascinates me about it is how different it is from the trajectory of Walter White and the trajectory of Walter White stemming in part from the lung cancer diagnosis and the sense that, you know, that that conveys a degree of impunity to him and kind of, mm-hmm. you know, in a weird way, mm-hmm. it's like Teflon kind of quality. Right. So Jimmy doesn't have that, but he has his own issues that... Uh, that, but, but it's just interesting to see the different trajectories that each yeah. one takes. Yeah, and and the but the so so I totally agree that Jimmy starts out with like this. He's a con man. You can you know he's a con man. He has this streak of tricking people and taking shortcuts and you know becoming a lawyer through the back door kind of a thing. But he wants to do good. And especially in the early seasons, he's trying to impress and live up to an expectation that's set by a father figure and his older brother, and he can't. He fails, you know? And it's that betrayal that he's not good. It's it's one of several uh, betrayals that happens in that show that, you know, sort of force... It doesn't force him down that road, but it leads him to embrace the worst parts of himself, as opposed to Walter White, where there's a schism you know that happens there's a there's a break where something an event occurs and he his his life that was on one track just takes a hard right you know and goes well breaks bad uh, so to speak <laughs> so uh, i don't think that you would be able to get walter white on your couch but if I you agree. but if you did what would the course of treatment be yeah so i uh, you know i think that it would be to let him figure out, because he's the smartest guy in the room, right? Mm-hmm. So let's start Always. there. Let him figure out. And I don't have to do a lot of work to get him to see it because, again, he's blinded by his narcissism and grandiosity, right? But if you peel that back just a little bit and let him look at the facts of the case, let him look at what's happening 
and have him describe what he is actually seeing and accumulating. You know, the wealth versus the danger, right? The relationships that he's making versus the relationships that he's losing. Mm -hmm. If you just allow him to actually have access to those things, you can nudge him in the direction of a more adaptive response to what's obviously a life-threatening condition. And, And in the end, what, you know, we in the end becomes, you know, uh, he's transitioned almost in a Darth Vader fashion to an entirely different person, you know. Uh, oh, we and, should really the, talk about Darth Vader. I, all right, Jordana, I <laughs> have to say this. I yeah. have to say it. I have, I'm very conflicted about Darth Vader. <laughs> and the reason is that Darth Vader, if you, if you Google Darth Vader and borderline personality disorder, there are literally dozens of not only psychiatrists, therapists, counselors, people of all fans, people of, you know, that are literally saying this character has all of these, he meets like the criteria in a way that most patients don't meet it, you know? Mm -hmm. And the reason that gives me pause to discuss in him in this way is because it it pathologizes in the worst possible way what's a very real clinical diagnosis and a tragic, challenging interpersonal style and existence for a lot of patients. Mm-hmm. So I, I would love to discuss it, but I also... We'd have to tread very carefully. We'd have to tread carefully, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah because... Maybe we'd have I don't to start make, with Kylo I don't Ren. I don't know. Kylo Ren right? also. I, yeah. I mean... I don't know, yeah. man. This is all the then we're and then we're like dipping our toe into the very deep waters of of Star Wars. I mean, yeah, we could just make this a, a Star Wars podcast at that point. You know, there's talk so about much my that- life taking a turn in a direction that I did not <laughs> expect. Wow, wow. Yeah, I'm trying to convince my girls actually to watch Star Wars, and it's just like not happening, and it's, uh, it's very irritating well, to me. Should that day come when? You know, it's just the mood strikes. We will we'll dip our toes. But in but but let's circle back. Let's oh, okay, okay. Back. Let's talk about what we're talking about. Fine, fine. Yeah. So Walter White, you know, we didn't even touch on Jesse Pinkman. <laughs> who's a much Jesse Pinkman has a great evolution. I'm just one minute on Jesse yeah, Pinkman. Yeah, yeah, fine, fine. And Skyler. Uh, Walter White's uh, uh, wife and uh, another character that goes through like real evolution Mm, over the course of the show. These two characters, they're more straightforward and they're clearly supporting characters compared to the protagonist, but they they wonderfully over five seasons evolve, get autonomy, agency, grow, develop, all these things that you wish for in people in a way that Walter White it's almost like everything that he gives up, they're sort of soaking up in their own in their own ways. Right. But yeah, Jesse Pinkman's had his own. What's the word? It's not. Uh, he he's had a. Um, I hate I hate when we're recording and there's like a very obvious word <laughs> and it just escapes me. And then when I, you know, uh, ten minutes later, I'm like, ah, oh, that was the word. You know? I know, I know. Yeah. Anyway, he's already gotten his credit back, you know, because they've done some some like a follow-up sort of movie and you know, so he's he's a fully formed character. But Walter White needs to get some therapy. If only he would, you know. If only he would. But you know, in fairness, he is very busy. <laughs> <laughs> really, well you know, it's going to have to be a telehealth. It's not it's not going to be a, an in-person kind of thing. In any event, this was so interesting and thank you as always. Thank you, Jordana. And I look forward to our next chat. All right. See you then. Bye. Bye. 
Please be advised that Characters on the Couch is a show focused only on fictional people, and none of the content should be considered medical or professional advice in any way. If you or someone you know is struggling with your mental health, please seek out professional consultation. Thank you. Thanks so much. Hope to see you guys next week.